Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze. The one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers. Inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. The tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 20 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom and Vera Grubbs. We have another great show for you this morning, beginning with a timeless poem for the season from John Kay, the second installment of the two-part interview with Brown County's own Reverend Josh Payton, and an interview with local author Sally Ann Murphy. Be sure to stay tuned to the rest of the show as we bring you a story from Dave Seastrom, more great music from Reverend Payton, a missive from Mike Buby, an interview with Rachel Perry, another poem from Tramp Star, a discussion about bats from the park naturalist Katie Kogler and Casey Norman, an overview of local geology with Bill Land, and the first installment in the history of Brown County's forest lands with Charlie Cole and Linda Baden. Hello again, this is John Kay. I grew up in Brown County, just down past Old Head and up Christiansburg Road, Little Peace. It's time again for our Hoosier Poetry Lesson. This time I'm going to share with you probably the best known piece of Indiana poetry that's out there. I remember when I was a kid, my father used to recite the, the opening couplet to this James Wickham Riley poem pretty regular. And there was a time when if you said, the frost is on the pumpkin, a chorus of voices would echo back at you, and the fodder's in the shock. So I thought as the air's getting cooler now, and I'd share with you probably the best known poem of fall from James Whitcomb Riley, When the Frost is on the Pumpkin. When the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock, and you hear the kilk and gobble of the strutting turkey cock, and the clacking of the guineas and the clucking of the hens and the rooster's hallelujah as he tiptoes on the fence. Oh, it's then the time a feller's a-feelin' at his best with the rising sun to greet him from a night of peaceful rest as he leaves the house bareheaded and goes out to feed the stock when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. There's something kind of hearty-like about the atmosphere when the heat of summer's over and the coolin' fall is here. Of course, we miss the flowers and the blossoms on the trees and the mumble of the humming birds and buzzing of the bees. But the air so appetizing and the landscape through the haze of a crisp and sunny morning of the airy autumn days is a picture that no painter has the color in the mock when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. The husky rusty rustle of the tossle of the corn and the rasping of the tangled leaves as golden as the morn. The stumble of the furries, kind of lonesome-like, but still a-preaching sermons to us of the barns they growed to fill. The straw stacks in the meadow, and the reaper in the shed, the hosses in their stalls below and clover overhead. Oh, it sets my heart a-clickin' like a ticket of a clock, 
when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. Then your apples all is gathered and ones the feller keeps is poured around the cellar floor in red and yellow heaps. And your cider making's over and your women folks is through with their mints and apple butter and their souse and sausage too. I don't know how to tell it, but if such a thing could be as angels wantin' boarding, and they'd call around on me, I'd want to accommodate them, all the whole enduring flock, when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. That's our little piece of Indiana poetry for this episode. So until next time, remember, the arts are for everyone every day. Reverend Payton. So at this point, you and Breezy could live anywhere in the world. Uh, so what is it that makes you call Brown County your home? You know, when I have um, so many generations of, 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 of family you know, that have been in southern Indiana, so many. It goes back to when Squire Boone came to, you know, to settle in southern Indiana, when you know, Daniel went to Kentucky and Squire went to southern Indiana. My family's been here that long in southern Indiana. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to live here. You know, it's home. You know, and I, and I could. I could live anywhere I want. We were talking years ago. We were talking about this reason. I were like, "Well, we could live anywhere we want. Yeah. You know, where do we want to live?" And it's like, "Well, I want to live here." You know, the great thing about Brown County, particularly, is that most of my family's from uh, Lawrence County, and and uh, 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 but anyway, the great thing about Brown County is there's no Walmart here. There is. There is, you know, there's a lot of great artists and musicians, but, you know, most of them still know how to skin a deer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's a very, very unique, special place. And uh, I feel like having more people that care about the culture here and what this is here, you know, sort of, you know, fighting for it and, and living it, you know, the better. So it can stay this way. You know, I, I, I just, I love it. You know, we're close to Bloomington, too, which is nice. Bloomington's a great town. And, and, uh, you know, not that far from any either, really, when it comes down to it. I mean, it's a it's it's a pretty pretty special place, and it's like far enough away from all those things to where it's kind of a uh, you're able to kind of walk back in time a little bit. You know, especially the south part of the county. You know, you walk it's like walking back in time to a different era, and it's uh, it's a part of American culture is being lost. This rural culture, man, is is being taken from us, being stolen by 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 Walmart by mcdonald's it's being franchised right out of our culture you know you could stay on the corner in savannah georgia in indianapolis indiana in you know in santa rosa new mexico and it doesn't matter you stay on the corner anywhere and like look there's applebee's there's home depot it's all the same it's literally all the same and and this here is a pocket of, of the universe where it is not that way you know, it is it is it is still very unique. It's still very much a culture here that is special, and it's to me it's like it's very old school. It feels more Southern Indiana maybe than any other place in Indiana. You know, it still feels so Southern Indiana, which I love. Well, we're uh, we're particularly delighted to share the camera. <laughs> uh, so, what's on the horizon? What are you working on? A new album, perhaps? Or? Yeah, we're going to be doing uh, going to the studio here real soon and uh, work on a record. I've been I've been uh, doing a lot of writing, and uh, uh, we're going to be uh, 
let's see, this uh, West Coast tour. And so, you know, we're working on a lot of things. You know, we're going to be back in Europe a bunch in the coming year. We're going to be, uh, you know, there's even talk about maybe doing some shows in Asia and Australia. I don't know. It's hard to say. But I, uh, you know, I love traveling. I love doing it. And I love being able to, to do that and then come back home. So it's nice to be able to do both, you know. Outstanding. Is, uh, do you have a working title for album number eight? No, not yet, not yet. Well, I usually don't until it's all said and done. So, so, you know, see if something, you know, shouts out at me or, you know, when it's all recorded, maybe it's by the time it'll, it'll say something to me, you know. Thank you so much for coming in, Rev. Uh, this is Dave Season with the Brown County Hour, and it's been a tremendous privilege. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. They don't say
do an extended piece. And well, my this. God, uh, you know, we, you get the we, rev going. And, uh, <laughs> we got to go beyond our six-minute thing. Right. Well, and we have that freedom, sir. Cool. So, well, uh, hopefully, you know, there might be you know something there. I, it was, sounds more interesting than others. Might ah, you have to take picture of me and Rev. Cool. Oh, man. It, it's Sorry, it's fun to be able to talk about home, too. Let's do it in front of this uh, this cool quilt, man. That'd be awesome. Okay. Right. That'd be good. How do you, how you fire this thing Here. up, dude? <laughs> oh, come on, you? I got a stupid-ass phone. Oh, you've got a flip phone. Yeah, oh, yeah. Now you're, yeah, make sure you're not blocking the little peephole. Yeah, I'm not doing that much, Your finger's dancing all in front of it, you know? <laughs> Oh, God. Here we go, one, three, yeah. gentlemen. One, <laughs> two. Oh, that's a good one. Cool. Thanks. No, I, I, this is a pretty cool thing, this, this, this museum here. It is. And, uh, are you hip to Frank Hohenberger? The photographer did all oh, the yes. old stuff. Check it out, man. All those pictures you remember? Yeah. We're taking these cameras. Really? Right here. These cameras right here. That's his enlarger. And all this stuff, wow. man. All this stuff. This is his stuff. This is the Brown County Hour interviewing Sally Ann Murphy on her book, Bean Blossom Dreams. This is Dave Seastrom, and here's Rick Fettig. And we're at our little satellite studio here in Nashville, and we have a great pleasure of having Sally Ann Murphy with us. Um, we've had her here before in representing Guardian Ad Litem, and uh, we got her back here now because uh, she's also an author. So we're going to cover that, and the, the book is about moving to Brown County, and she's from Great Britain, so that makes it quite interesting. <laughs> so hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. You've been here uh, how long now? Um, well, we we actually found the farm in 1990, and we moved in January 91. Are you getting used to us yet? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think so. <laughs> I still have to translate on occasion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I thought the book was delightful. I read it, and I, and I was uh, delightfully confused. <laughs> because Bye. I wasn't sure I was reading the book version of Mother Earth magazine. Ah! <laughs> Uh, animal husbandry, a big one. <laughs> or a husband husbandry. Husband husbandry, <laughs> yeah. yes. Or gardening or child rearing. It covered all those. And Parenting, it's like, well, this is a yes. well-rounded book here. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's a balanced life, country living, child rearing. Well, it was about all of those things. Yeah, exactly. I so mean, it just we had, covered you know, our, so many Our daughter things. was turned well, three yeah. just at the week before we moved. So. Oh, wow. Well, uh, one of the things I really loved, speaking of your daughter, mm -hmm. the, the, the end of it where she was uh, having this relationship with the butterfly. Yes. She <laughs> went out one evening and found it, and then she was so excited when it was there the next morning waiting on her. So I thought that was a real cute part of it. Greg and I kind of reached a new stage in, in life where, you know, we're at that sort of reflective time where we're coming towards the end of, you know, we're within 10 years of sort of the end of our working lives right. and uh, and we're looking towards you know different things in the future and we're beginning to actually go back to a lot of the things that we talked about in the very beginning of the book that we kind of strayed away from as one does when you've got teenage kids and you're trying to put them through college and you know we all know about that and um, you know you've got to earn money and all that sort of thing you know so we're building a much bigger garden the idea being that you know that we can go back to that self-sufficiency sort of model, and um, I'm thinking about doing like a book about older people in this environment uh, and calling it once more with feeling. 
Well, and uh, it would seem that the perspective of, okay, so you came from a different life, mm -hmm. and you moved here, and you found that you fit in, and now, you know, 20 years after the publication of your book, of the viewpoint from that perspective, you know, uh, we've made this choice, we love being here, and now here we are, you know, and this right. is the way it is now. Right, exactly. Uh, I just, you know, I just love the way you handle it. It, it reminded me of Harrington, actually. So, uh, we were talking about all of your critters, and at one point you, you said you had 75 animals? At the, high, at the peak of our craziness. Peak. We're talking we widespread here, right? Horses, chickens, ducks. Insane. I mean, I absolutely goats. swear that on the roof of the barn somewhere is painted sucker. Well, one thing I liked about the book was um, just the, the fluid and the colorful language but just the descriptions of stuff you mentioned material autism yes in there which is a lack of desire for for material things or a lack of, lack of recognition of them really i would say that was the time remember that was the sort of coming out of the 80s uh -huh. you know where everything had to have a designer name oh yeah, yeah stamped yeah. on it gucci and your whatever this and that uh, yeah. and i was always i've always been I've always been in a klutz, and I've always been one of the least stylish people I know who never recognized. <laughs> so, I mean, did you milk goats and cows and oh, all yes. that? So then you made butter and cheese and yogurt. and. Well, let me read a paragraph from your book, and so the people will get an idea of uh, how it goes. And I think in this part you were chasing a wild dog or trying to get it down. You're talking about uh, man's veneer. Man's veneer of civilization is really very thin. We stomp around the planet, behaving like masters of all we survey, only to be blown over by the first strong wind that blows in our direction. The child throws a tantrum, the snake strikes, the other nations tell us what we're sitting on, that we're sitting on their land, and our initial reaction is, slap it, kill it, let's go to war. The more vulnerable we feel, the more violent we become. Now here we go again. Homo sapiens out hunting the latest threat while I sat on the front porch feeling as if I had fallen off the evolutionary ladder. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That doesn't express it. <laughs> Which was about um, this Doberman who'd been living on our land. We discovered had been living on our land probably since we'd got there, mm. since he was a tiny pup and surviving through this network of tunnels that he created him for himself in the brush. So it was his territory. Um, and he basically just came out after he'd finished. He'd kept, he'd lived off the muskrats. He finally ran out of those and got hungry. And that was when we began to see him. Why don't you tell people where or how they can get the book and you got a website yes. or something like that? No, uh, no, I don't. But it's available on, on Amazon. Uh, IU Press reissued it in 2003 and so that's available on Amazon and then also um, kind of excitingly this year um, they just brought it out as an ebook so it's also available oh, for good. Kindle as well excellent wow. for the electronically excellent. inclined exactly yeah. <laughs> well I, I for one really hope you do write that next one well, thank you. I'm, I'm thinking of it, but not just yet, because I have, I have a lot of work to do for the county first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's got her hands full. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for coming, Sally Ann Murphy. We'll be right back after station identification.
Welcome back to the Brown County Hour. In this segment, we have a story from Dave Seastrom, more music from the Reverend Peyton, a missive from Mike Buby, and an interview with Rachel Perry. As the days grow ever shorter and the nights become cold, a profound change settles over Brown County. The canopy that graces our hillsides and valleys begins to look tired and worn, somehow ready for a change, and there's a perceptible difference in the woods we can all feel. Those of us who are fortunate enough to live here know the signs well. Slowly at first, then in full eruption, a massive change sweeps over the forest as colors of every hue begin to show themselves for all the world to see. Everywhere you look, unbelievable beauty encompasses the viewer as this transition shouts from the hills, We are here. The time is now. Make haste because winter is on its way. Everything changes before our eyes. Even the air takes on a different quality as crisp mornings are accented with the aroma of wood smoke emanating from the chimneys, warming the hearth and home of many a Brown Countyan. Living as we do amidst all of this splendor, we never grow tired of this magical time of year. Many of our flatland neighbors drive here for miles around to share this spectacle in our neck of the woods. In fact, so many leaf lookers come, they become part of the show filling the streets of Nashville with throngs of folks spending a day or two within the glory of it all. Tourism has slowed down a bit from the high point in the 70s when bumper-to-bumper traffic would be backed up from Morgantown, Columbus, and Bloomington, and the streets of Nashville were crowded to the point where they resembled the big cities so many of the tourists came here to get away from. In many ways, it's much better now that fewer people crowd our roadways and overwhelm our little town. But our doors remain open to the city-weary, seeking solace and sustenance in the natural world. We're delighted to share this time of beauty. We know this is something special, and we want everyone to enjoy their stay, and hopefully come away with an appreciation of exactly how special a natural woods environment truly is, and perhaps to foster a desire to see this area cherished and protected. As a child, my parents and I were part of the great annual migration. And I remember a few fall nights sleeping in one of the cabins at the state park. Somehow, I have to believe these early experiences opened my heart to the natural world and began my lifelong love affair with this area. One way or the other, something did, and now I could hardly imagine living anywhere else. The colors are wonderful, and during their brief tenure, we are introduced to a world that's special and exciting. Fall is often a time for get-togethers. The cider is cold and the hearts are warm as friends gather around campfires or back porches enjoying the season. But the day comes when the cycle is complete and the leaves fall like rain, cascading from the trees in a torrent of multi-hued splendor. The naked forest is revealed and the contours of the land can be seen once again as a walk through the woods is accented with a crunch of new fallen leaves that have finished their work for another year. And... As quickly as it came, fall is over, beginning the long, quiet time of winter. Every season brings its own special offering, and the woods reflect each of those transitions in ways that are best experienced. The fact that we become famous for just one of these seasons is in its own way understandable. After all, fall is perhaps the showiest season of the year. But I would offer the idea that one season without the others would be incomplete and wouldn't tell the whole story. 
I would propose that it's the totality of the four seasons that enhance our perspective. As one flows into another, we see the transition as a natural confluence of life in the forest lands, and we are left to ponder the mystery. Having said all of that, I acknowledge that there is something special about fall. Perhaps it's the beauty. Perhaps it's knowing that the cycle of life is forever turning, and during one brief time of the year, we are all immersed in loveliness so wonderful, we can't help but feel overwhelmed with it all. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time.
Hi, this is Mike Buby for the Brown County Radio Hour. I came across an article on the internet that I feel is amusing, yet serious enough to justify passing on to you listeners. The results and concept of it affect us all. Don't be alarmed by its contents. Just be aware of how information is presented to you from all sources. Here's the article. Ban dihydrogen monoxide, the invisible killer. Dihydrogen monoxide is colorless, odorless, tasteless, and kills uncounted thousands of people every year. Most of these deaths are caused by accidental inhalation of dihydrogen monoxide, but the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide do not end there. Prolonged exposure to its solid form causes severe tissue damage. Symptoms of dihydrogen monoxide ingestion can include excessive sweating and urination, and possibly a bloated feeling, nausea, vomiting, and body electrolyte imbalance. For those who have become dependent, dihydrogen monoxide withdrawal means certain death. Dihydrogen monoxide is also known as hydroxyl acid and is the major component of acid rain. It contributes to the greenhouse effect, may cause severe burns, contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape, accelerates corrosion and rusting of many metals. It may cause electrical failures and decreased effectiveness of automobile brakes and has been found in excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. Contamination is reaching epidemic proportions. Quantities of dihydrogen monoxide have been found in almost every stream, lake, and reservoir in America today. But the pollution is global and the contaminant has even been found in Antarctic ice. Dihydrogen monoxide has caused millions of dollars of property damage worldwide. Despite the danger, dihydrogen monoxide is often used as an industrial solvent and coolant in nuclear power plants, in the production of styrofoam, as a fire retardant, in many forms of cruel animal research, in the distribution of pesticides, and as an additive in certain junk foods and other food products. Companies dump waste dihydrogen monoxide into rivers and the ocean, and nothing can be done to stop them because this practice is still legal. The impact on wildlife is extreme and we cannot afford to ignore it any longer. The horror must be stopped. The American government has refused to ban the production, distribution, or the use of this damaging chemical due to its, quote, importance to the economic health of this nation, unquote. In fact, the Navy and other military organizations are conducting experiments with dihydrogen monoxide and designing multi-billion dollar devices to control and utilize it during warfare situations. Hundreds of military research facilities receive tons of it through a highly sophisticated underground distribution network. Many store large quantities for later use. But it's not too late. Act now to prevent further contamination. Find out more about this dangerous chemical. What you don't know can hurt you and others. When the truth is known, you will know that dihydrogen monoxide is nothing more than water. Are you surprised? This is an example of the importance of getting the facts before you react. Don't be misled when something is identified by the use of uncommon terms. Be willing to investigate the things you are asked to believe if you don't understand them. 
This article is used as an example to make you aware of how things can be portrayed compared to how they really are. This has been an entertaining news brief for the faithful listeners of WFHB and the Brown County Radio Hour. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour for WFHB, and I'm speaking today to Rachel Perry. She's one of our wonderful, legendary Renaissance women of Brown County. How are you today, Rachel? I'm doing great. You have had quite a year. Your latest book about T.C. Steele made the short list for two book awards, and you've retired recently. It's uh, been a little over a year now. And how does that feel for you now? It's a, it's a balancing act, actually. Many people would consider that I haven't really been retired because I've been writing books, articles for magazines. I've been keeping busy. I have a lot of projects that have timelines and paychecks at the end of them. Right, so retired is the wrong word. We should say in transition or... More, I feel like I'm still employed, but perhaps I'm self-employed now, Ah. and I have more creative control over my projects. (laughs) Plus, you're not driving up to Indy every day. That is a total blessing. (laughs) So the career you did leave behind you was with the State Museum. Correct. I was the fine arts curator there, organized exhibits, and wrote a lot about Indiana art, which is something I still do. And I actually have two contracts coming up. How were you trained for this kind of work? I um, actually had a pretty eclectic college career. I didn't get my undergraduate degree till I was 42. I shooed horses. I was a farrier for about 12 years. I remember that. When I first came to Brown County. When I went back to college after going to school out at the University of California in Berkeley and then also at IU, I just got a what's called a general studies degree for returning women. Then I had already started working at the T.C. Steele State Historic Site in Brown County, so I decided to go ahead and get my master's degree in museum studies, and I got that from the University of Oklahoma in Norman. I did my master's thesis on an art history project, which was Ada Walter Schultz, who was a Brown County artist. Talking about the spirit of Brown County, the intensity and the lifestyle, What impact does it have on you and your life? Well, when I first moved here in 1976, I came here, I think, mainly for nature, to enjoy being in the woods. But then I built a house down on T.C. Steel Road, and I had horses. I really enjoyed just being able to saddle up and ride in any direction. And, of course, I had become a horseshoer, so everything was sort of in sync with what I really enjoyed. Now, it's really different for me, and one of the things that is the phenomenon of email and how it has facilitated getting together with a lot of other like-minded people in the county. For instance, Mike Kelly's monthly moonwalks and just having a mass email so that anyone who wants to can attend or participate. And similarly, I I hike with a group on Mondays. It's the Monday Loopers. Yes. And we do a five-mile hike and then a picnic. And that's another email invitation. So anyone that wants to can participate in these things. And there are a lot of people, I guess you would say young seniors, people my age, who um, in the county who appreciate the same things. I'm loving the county for that reason, too, the social reasons. Mm -hmm. 
as well as the ability to be in nature a lot of the time. And also close to Bloomington where I can go to a recital if I want to. There's a lot of musical and free entertainment available. And since the county is becoming so much more proactive with the offerings here with the new wonderful movie theater. Can you tell me what vision you have for the future for Brown County? I don't think Brown County is unique in its um, challenges. Mm. I think a lot of places that are known for their nature and the pristine environment that they have, as more and more people are attracted to that, it can have a negative impact on it. And so the people who are here first kind of thing think that, that, you know, they can fight off anyone else who wants to become part of that. And I don't think that's really the answer. But I do think that developing the county in the wrong ways and taking advantage of the county can be really detrimental. And we have to be mindful of that and participate in whatever we have to to make sure that whatever development is taking place is compatible with the environment and with not ruining the reason why we all came here. My most recent book is a biography of an artist named William Forsyth, who was was a Hoosier Group member with T.C. Steele and three other artists. The book that just came out is called Painting Indiana Three, Heritage of Place. It's kind of a celebration of plein air or on-location painting. It has the history of plein air painting in Indiana. So we have been speaking with Rachel Perry, and this is Vera Grubbs for the Brown County Hour for WFHB. We'll be right back after station identification. Welcome back to the Brown County Hour. In our final segment this morning, we have a poem from Tramp Star, some timely information about our friends, the bats, a look at local geology with Bill Land, the first installment in an ongoing series concerning the history of forest land in Brown County with Charlie Cole and Linda Baden, and a final tune from Reverend Payton and his big damn band. Hi, I'm Tramp Star. You don't know about me without you've read the writings of a fellow named Carl Wilson, but that ain't no matter. Carl was a writer, a goat farmer, a boxer, and an all-round swell guy. Good friend of mine. Carl used to publish some of my stuff under the title Jokes and Jingles from Curly Shingles by Tramp Star. Curly Shingles was the name he had given his little old cabin. The shake shingles had all kind of curled up on him. Tramp Star is, well, that's me. Oracle. Never was a kinder fellow anywhere on earth, I guess. Appears like he just dedicated his whole life to helpfulness. Took his comfort in advising everyone that come his way, asking only thanks in payment. Not getting none, I might say. 
No job was too big or little. There he'd be, plumb heaven sent. Tell folks how to raise a baby or advise a president. Found a wisdom, human signboard, pointing roads for everyone and past errors too. Him saying, here's what you ought to done. Calm and godlike sort of fella. Never had a single doubt of his judgment or the rightness of the roads he pointed out. Smartest man in all creation and the freest with advice. Never had to stop and ponder or apparently think twice. Went and told a brand new bridegroom the exact and proper course to pursue to hold his woman. Day his wife got her divorce. Wrote long letters to the paper telling how to win success. Helping others win the poorhouse was his permanent address. Give his own grandpa a lecture, laying down the rules of health whereby he could reach a hundred. Day he up and died himself. Yep, he died and went to glory. See him up there in my mind's eye, giving Gabriel music lessons, teaching angels how to fly. This is Katie Kogler from Brown County State Park. As we are hunkered down in our homes for the winter, I can't help but think about another animal that is waiting out the cold. Come spring, it will wake up and you'll be glad. Imagine a giant swarm of mosquitoes in your yard. Unpleasant, right? Well, a bat can help you out. One little brown bat can eat 20,000 mosquitoes in a summer. Another way to look at it is that a bat can eat about half its body weight each night in insects. And this is Cassie Norman, the other naturalist at Brown County State Park. Bats, sometimes scary, sometimes spooky, but they can be cute and are very beneficial to the environment. Cassie, I was wondering about some myths I've heard about bats. For one thing, are bats blind? Can't they get tangled in your hair if you go near them? No, Katie. Bats have no need to go into our hair. Their use of echolocation helps them to navigate through their environment very well, and they can easily avoid hitting us or getting in our hair. Well, that's a relief, but what about rabies? Do all bats have rabies? No, that's another myth. In addition to bats, many other animals can get rabies, including fox, raccoons, cats, and even dogs. In fact, most people are exposed to rabies through close contact with cats or dogs. But if you really are worried about bats having rabies, just be cautious when you're handling them and always use a glove. Okay, I'm not so sure about vampire bats. They seem pretty scary. The only species of bats that suck blood live in Latin America, and there are only a few species that do so. Researchers are working with the saliva of vampire bats because of its anticoagulant properties. It may be useful as a treatment for strokes or even heart attacks. Another neat thing about vampire bats is that they are one of the few wild animals that will adopt a baby of their species. They don't sound so bad after all. How can I attract them to my yard? Well, you can't attract vampire bats to your yard, but you can other bats. Like all organisms, bats need food, water, and a place to raise their young. Providing these things can ensure that you will attract the bug-eating bats. Okay, thanks Cassie. Hey, I did some research the other day about the importance of bats. Bats are very important for controlling insect pests and for pollination. Do you like to eat bananas? How about cashews? Much of our fruit is a result of bat pollination, including bananas, mangoes, peaches, and cashews. Also, bat guano has been used as a fertilizer for many years. Scientists have also been able to isolate certain bacteria in guano to make laundry detergents and other useful products. Guano isn't just useful to us, though. Whole cave ecosystems depend on the nutrient-bringing bat guano. Bats are in danger right now, 
and many bats in Indiana get white-nose syndrome. White-nose syndrome is a fungus that grows on the bats that hibernate in the caves when the weather is cool and the bats' immune systems are naturally suppressed due to hibernation. The fungus wakes up the bats during hibernation and that causes problems for them during the winter because there is a lack of food. Residents of Indiana might want to know about the status of white-nose syndrome. Most caves are still closed down at state parks. The only DNR-operated cave open right now is Twin Caves at Spring Mill State Park. Also, the USGS recommends that cave explorers suspend their caving activities for now. Scientists have found out that the fungus doesn't grow well in hot environments and they were unsure of how it survived throughout the summer. The coolness of caves provides ideal growing conditions. The fungus can survive in the caves for months or even years after bats have departed, making repopulating the caves difficult. Soil can get stuck in the tread of a boot, allowing the fungus to be passed on to other caves. Because of this, visitation to caves has been restricted. Again, the only DNR-operated cave currently open is Twin Caves at Spring Mill State Park. Of the bats hibernating over the winter in Indiana, about 23% of those hibernate in caves. During hibernation, the bats are in a state of lowered metabolism and they don't use up as much of their fat reserves. If they are disturbed, as though by something such as a person walking into a cave or by white-nose fungus, they become active and their metabolism speeds up, depleting their fat reserves. With the problems that bats are having right now, there's a few things that we can do to help. We can join or donate to a bat conservation organization or a rehabilitation center, install bat houses, encourage teachers to include bats and in lesson plans about nature and the environment, give bat talks in your community, especially to educate others about the harmful misconceptions about bats, and invite other bat conservation groups to join in. Educate children on the look but don't touch policy for bats. Bats are sometimes spooky, but hopefully now they seem less scary and much more helpful. This has been Katie Kogler from Brown County State Park. And Cassie Norman. Thank you for listening. This is Bill Land with the land and the lore of Brown County. The Brown County prehistory is a fascinating topic. The land bridge from Siberia, the folks came over in great numbers. That ocean was about 300 feet shallower than it is today. There's plenty of dry land to come across, coming into California eventually and then out through the Dakotas and ending up here in Brown County. Actually, a lot of civilization was here during the Ice Ages. The Ice Ages in the Brown County area, around 17,000 years ago, up to around 14,000 years ago. And um, the Clovis culture actually came up into the Ice Age area, where maybe the ice is back toward Indianapolis or up toward Fort Wayne. But that Clovis culture has left some artifacts, and I found one. Boy, was that fun. About five feet deep in the bank of Bear Creek, I found about a four-inch point. It had little sawtooth edges on each side. Took it over to the archaeology, anthropology lab at the university, and they said it was about 12,000 years ago. And I gave it to a museum. What a wonderful treat it was for me to give it to some place where people could enjoy that Clovis Point. Can you imagine five feet down in the soil and how long that had been buried there? The Clovis culture had rock shelters down near the Ohio River. Near the county of Perry, in the, the rock shelter area, there were large villages. And when the folks came up here in Brown County, they came as hunting parties of about 8 to 12 people. 
There was never a big village that we can find in the county. About 12,000 years ago, there were some encampments. But that encampment, you can imagine what it was like. It was a tundra. It was like constant February, constant March, all the time. Very little vegetation. The ice finally left the state, and then the trees started to come back. But before that, for a really long time, there was good, good hunting on these hunting parties. Caribou, muskox, ground sloth, saber-toothed tigers. Even the mastodon and mammoth were in the area. But you know what? There's not that many of those ancient bones here in the county because the county has gotten a lot of water, a lot of erosion, and this is just not a good place for the, for the bones to get protected you know, from the elements. But it's a great indication that those wonderful creatures were here and were hunted really for several thousand years. And then finally, the Native Americans started coming into the area, particularly the Miami from the north, the Shawnee from the south, many times small tribal groups early on. This is pre-settlement. This is prehistory. They came in again and again and again. Some small groups were pushed in because of small contention areas and fracases and warfares and hunting parties and all sorts of desperation. They were pushed in and out of this county, but still it was really small groups. We do find good arrowheads in the Plum Creek area, Salt Creek, Bean Blossom Creek. We find some good arrowheads and Bear Creek on the northwest part of the county. With the forest coming back, some of those forest trees were huge. In fact, there was a big tree cut on Slippery Elm Chute Road on Bear Creek that was seven feet in diameter. Late at night in the moonlight, you can almost imagine people stalking their game in the full moonlight, what that must have been like. Certainly this whole valley, particularly Bean Blossom Valley, was loaded with wonderful people with hunting on their mind. This has been Bill Land with the Land Lower Brown County. My name is Linda Baden. I'm a member of the Friends of Yellowwood, an organization that's dedicated to protecting and preserving Yellowwood State Forest. My name is Charlie Cole. I happen to be Linda Baden's husband. We happen to be 30-year residents of the Yellowwood Lake watershed. I think we want to start by giving a little background about the history of Yellowwood State Forest how it came to be, and what its current status is. We're going to go way back in time to the shallow sea, the, uh, the sea that, was, that covered most of Indiana pre-glacial times. There's remnants of that shallow sea that still exist in Brown County in the form of salt water that can be reached if you drill down 130 feet. In 1809, the 10 o'clock treaty was signed, giving the lower third of Indiana to the white settlers. And the um, verbiage said something about as far as the eye can see to the northwest at 10 o'clock, blah, blah. It turns out that a local rumor has it that there was a little jog in the line to include the uh, Salt Creek salt wells in Yellowwood State Forest on the white side. And that kind of begins the saga of the exploitation by Europeans of the natural resources of Brown County. While the glaciers that covered the northern two-thirds of the state left behind a thick consolidated surface deposits that developed into rich, fertile soils, Brown County wasn't that lucky. We were in the unglaciated part of the state, and our, our soils were weathered till, and they didn't really have any um, organic matter in them. These thin soils came the basic soil that we see today in Brown County. It's a stony soil over siltstone. Siltstone was revealed by the 
the action of the meltwaters from the glaciers that stopped about 20 miles north of Brown County, and they left behind the Brown County that we know today. Along the edge of the glacier line from the Wisconsinian Glacier were deposited the geodes, which are used as local units of uh, currency, I believe. They are from the Mississippian era, 330 million or so years ago. These geodes are, as far as I know, the only geodes in the world that are not a result of uh, volcanic activity. These happen to be, in many cases, recognizable marine fossils. Again, remnants of the shallow sea, the same sea that brought us our salt. The salt was one of the draws of the Europeans to Brown County. At the time of European settlement in Brown County, around 1818, the county was completely forested. There was a huge task for the settlers who were basically farmers in front of them. They felt they had to clear this vast amount of, of land. They also had no industry, they had no basic staples, and the salt that was available in these deep salt mines was an attraction that was created the first industry in Brown County. We think that there were uh, not very many uh, indigenous people that actually settled in the area but there were a lot of movement of those peoples through the area for hunting and foraging. The Land Act of 1800 made it easy for private individuals to acquire federal land, and that opened the floodgates for settlement of Brown County. By 1810, the Indiana territorial population had increased to about 24,000 people. Following the War of 1812, a lot of settlers came into specifically into Brown County. These were soldiers in that War of 1812, and they were given land grants by the federal government to settle these lands. And the land in Brown County was considered undesirable because it was so steep and so unwelcoming for the agriculture that most of these settlers were used to experiencing. The valley that uh, Yellowwood Lake resides in was known as Starve Hollow. The ridge to the west of the lake was known as scasofat, referring to the amount of soil on the top of the ridge. Since the early settlers throughout Indiana were primarily farmers, the land in Brown County, being less desirable, was settled a little bit more slowly than other places in the state. But the demand for lumber throughout the state increased the pressure on the Brown County forests. I'm a 
Thanks for tuning in to episode 20 of the Brown County Hour, broadcast from WFHB Community Radio, the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. You can stream this or any one of our shows at our website, browncountyhour.com, and be sure to visit us on Facebook. This morning, we are sad to say goodbye to fellow producer and good friend Janice Pierce as she leaves the show for other opportunities. We'll greatly miss her many contributions, and we wish her all the best in her new endeavors. The show was produced by Jeff Foster and Pam Rader and co-produced by Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. Executive producer for WFHB is Allison Baktesh. Special thanks to Slats Klug for our theme music. listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County Oh